Hey everyone, I'm Jacob Cohen Donnelly and this is a Media Operator. This show is a discussion about building media companies for current and prospective media operators. We discuss business models, products, audience development, subscriptions, advertising, commerce, everything to help you with your media business. To learn more and to become a premium member of the newsletter, visit amediaoperator.com slash amopodcast to receive 10% off a yearly subscription. My guest this week is Neil Vogel, CEO of DotDash, a publisher of multiple brands in health, food, finance, and other verticals. During our 45-minute discussion, we talked about the first two years at About.com, where things didn't go as planned, the decision to break About up into the individual brands that exist today, and its strategy of creating the best content on the fastest sites with a streamlined ad experience. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'll be honest, beyond the work you've done running DotDash, I know very little about your background. Can you talk a bit about how you got started in media and what brought you to what was then about.com? Oh, uh, sure, sure. I thought you were going to ask me a question about like the Sixers entrusting the process from our Twitter relationship, but I'm happy to give you actual background. Um, I, um, I don't, I will tell you that um, running at something like about.com was never really part of the plan. I was, I was an investment banker uh, out of college for a number of years, which I liked very much, but wasn't really like the life path I wanted to take. Uh, and from banking, I'm old at this. Uh, in the uh, like late 90s, 2000, I left banking to go to work uh, with a client. Uh, I did a lot of media internet stuff when I was a banker, early internet. Uh, called Alloy Online, which uh, then became called Alloy. And we were a media marketing service business for high school and college kids. And we did really well. And we went public in the 1.0 boom and you know, grew a business like 300 million in revenue and 50 or 60 in EBITDA. And it's sort of where I learned the lesson that like, if you have businesses that generate cash, nobody can tell you what to do. You generally can control your future. So that, that shaped a lot of my um, future thinking. And I stayed there for four or five years and I was pretty young and the, the guys running the business were also pretty young, a little bit older than me. So I, I was never going to be the CEO. And I, I, after a couple of years there, and we had a pretty good run. I wanted to take a shot um, at doing something myself. So with a partner who was a, an old friend from investment banking, uh, we did a very small buyout of oddly an award show business, something called the Telly Awards, which sort of like helped tell people what uh, good TV commercials were and good advertising was. And then we uh, then bought the Webby Awards, which was basically out of business. And we revived the Webby Awards. And we took this platform and put together uh, nine or 10 different award shows and properties and then uh, eventually sold it to a private equity uh, shop. So I um, was then on to my next adventure. I sat for a few months at a place called First Mark Capital, where I have some friends, which are those guys are like sneakily some of the best, actually not sneakily anymore, but quietly, uh, some of the best VC investors in the world. They have an unbelievable track record. And I sat there for four or five months. They were kind enough to call me a venture partner or whatever. I ate all of their food and sat in all their meetings and realized that like I would be a terrible VC because I don't have that kind of like patience. Uh, I'm, I'm much more into doing things. And uh, I, I just from being around the internet for a long time, I knew the guys at IEC. I knew a guy named Joey Levin, who's now the CEO of IEC, who called me um, and said, you know, they, they had just bought about.com from the New York Times for like 300 million bucks ish. And they'd owned it for a few months. And I know they were looking for someone to run it. And I kind of knew it wasn't doing as well as they would have hoped at the time. 
and he called me and had me in. And I frankly thought, because we were, we were sort of friends, I, I thought he was like just asking me um, if I knew someone who would take the gig. And it turned out that um, they, they had some interest in having me do it. And I looked at all the information and like, I could not have been uh, less interested in doing this, like coming off of like a fun thing I started and like a hot internet company and working for a big VC to go and work for like, go and run the most boring, tired thing on the internet did not have a lot of appeal. But then I, I dug a level deeper and uh, and obviously I see is Barry Diller and Joey and, and obviously those guys are two of the smartest people in media. I was like, well, they see something here, so it's worth exploring. Uh, and and I, I, we went deep on it together and I realized that, well, this thing's been around for a really long time. And what does it do? Well, it, it's, it's an evergreen site. It obviously covers a broad range of stuff. Basically the mandate was covered like everything, you could, everything in the world. Um, but the product was terrible. The user experience was terrible, but somehow or another, they still had 30 or 40 million people a month using it each month. And the people who were using it, um, the most interesting thing was we've, I sort of figured out, or we figured out like what intent meant. And all these people were using about.com, this sort of relatively brandless thing to get advice on like what to cook or their health or something financial. And the ads performed incredibly well. This didn't make any sense to me. I'm like, oh, right. And they perform really well because the people advertising on about.com are understanding that like people are using about.com, using it for a very specific purpose. So if you can put the advertising around a specific purpose, that will work. And, and I took a look and said, okay, wait a minute. This content has value. This user clearly has value to advertisers. Everything else about this is a mess. So that actually seems really interesting. And plus it's this old brand everyone's heard of. And, you know, when am I going to have, I haven't had a boss in a long time. When am I going to have a chance to work for Barry Diller and Joey? That seems really appealing. Um, and they're going to give me the keys. And uh, like, frankly, there's not a lot of downside. Like I'm, I'm not going to be the guy that messed up about.com. So you mix all that together and I decided to do it. And uh, I, I knew some folks and I managed to bring in some people I'd work with when I, when I got there. And we put together a, a really good team, like a team that was way better than the business uh, when, when I first got there. And then uh, we set off to fix about.com. And you know, I, can, I can tell you that story if, if you want. That is exactly my next question. You know, when you took that job, what was, what was the fundamental shift you saw necessary to effectively fix about.com and turn it into what is now dot-dash? Well, to be totally clear and honest, um, we were totally wrong when, when we got there. Like we could not have been more wrong in our assessment of what we needed to do. We thought we needed to, let's clean up the site, make it usable, make it fast. Let's clean up the content so it's better and not so sloppy. And, you know, if you dug deep, the quality got really bad. Let's clean all that up. And then we'll have this brand that everybody will know and everything will be happy and that will be easy and we'll sell ads and everything will be great. And it turns out that, um, that was a, not a working plan because, because baked into that plan was essentially looking around at media and like doing what everybody else was doing. And one of the interesting things about the team that we brought in is none of us, we'd all worked in and around media, but none of us had ever been like a publisher or anything like a publisher. And, we saw what these other people were doing with, with social and how they were investing. And this was like, oh, well, we can do that with about.com. That'll be easy. But none of it worked. And we spent two or three years sort of trying to shine up and clean up this thing. And it just was not working. And we got much better at making money. 
But it turns out that's not the hard part. That's the easy part. But we, we did not get better at audience. And our audience was just going down and down and down and down every month. And I think our first, I, I'm going to get the slightly wrong, but direction this is right. I think we missed eight of our first nine quarters financially as part of IAC, which is a public company, which is not a recipe for success nor continued employment. But I do think they liked us because we were, we were constantly trying things and we we're constantly learning. And after two or two and a half years of, of a great team and really smart people um, with good ideas, we, we kind of came to the conclusion that we were doing the wrong thing. And we kind of figured that publishing was a huge mess. And this was the conclusion we made. Publishing is a business that fundamentally cannot work unless you can get control of two things. And the first thing is your audience. And, and what we figured out was at, at this point, the internet had changed a lot. If you're going to be in the consumer internet business, not just publishing, but anything, it can be travel, it can be entertainment, it can be anything, there are going to be algorithms between you and your user. So you got to figure out that relationship and you have to put yourself in a place where you understand that, that you're going to have to deal with algorithms and, and you're going to have to have a, a symbiotic relationship with them. And on the other side of the business at the time, it was mostly, it was for them, it was entirely advertising. I mean, as of now, advertising is a much less significant part of our business, but then it was almost all advertising. Advertising appeared to us to be a race to the bottom, that everyone was selling audiences and you could just buy them cheaper from the next guy. So there's no real advantage you're having. And if someone's just like buying based on cookies or based on audience, like who cares? They're just doing it on price. So you basically had no control of your supply and you had no control of your demand. And we were like, this seems really dumb. Like, unless you can get control of your supply and your demand, this, this business is going to zero and we don't want to be in it. That would, it would be, it's a particularly bad business in, in that context. So, um, so we look at those two things. We're like, well, how do we get control of our relationship with consumers and our relationship with advertisers? And we said, okay, we need to do this differently. First, there's the obvious thing. And, and this is the thing that you could see in our business. And a lot of people that weren't us saw in our business that there was, there was no place for a general interest internet company anymore, giving information that's valuable. Like if you're sick, do you want uh, information on your diabetes uh, treatment from WebMD or from about.com? Like a hundred times out of a hundred, you want it from WebMD. Do you want your blueberry pie recipe from Bon Appetit or about.com? Like Bon Appetit, a hundred times out of a hundred. So we knew we had a branding problem. And so the first thing we did is we took a look at our site and said, okay, what are the areas that we are in that are commercially viable that we think we have a chance to be successful in an environment where maybe we're not about.com anymore, maybe we're something else. And we honed in on areas that we had a lot of really, really good content. And this is the advantage of starting with about.com. We had great content in health, great content in finance, great content in food and drink, great content in home. Um, great content in tech and a few other areas. So we said, okay, we have the makings of, of, of we can figure out how to carve things out of about.com. And we figured we can do this. So we, we went and said, we're going to launch our own new consumer brands in these categories. We're going to throw like 80% of about.com's content in the trash. And we're going to end up with new brands in these areas, which is interesting and like if there's a health brand called Very Well that is all about health and built like health and, and speaks in health language, that's going to be better than about.com. And that's fairly obvious. But the the thing we're more focused on is something that that um, I don't remember if Barry Dealer said this or if Joey said this. They're basically like, you, you guys have one problem. 
don't make one problem six problems. Like just doing the same thing rebranded is not going to solve your problems. And, and we knew this too. This was sort of like the lead for us. So what we realized is we just had to look at like what is going to work on the internet. And and I'll, like I'll take a step back and I'll make an example of like what was not working on the internet. And 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 there's this narrative came about that publishing can't work online. And we thought that was false. And and here's why. Because imagine um, you're pitching a TV executive in the early days of television, right? And you're going to pitch them your idea for this thing called a sitcom. And a sitcom is going to be great. And here's your idea. Sitcom is going to be a half an hour long. And here's what we're going to do. It's going to be 20 minutes of ads and 10 minutes of very mediocre content. Isn't that an awesome idea? And the TV guy says, yes, great idea, puts it on TV, and then it doesn't work and nobody watches it. And then the conclusion is TV doesn't work. TV can't possibly work. That's obviously preposterous, but that's what people were doing on the internet and particularly in consumer publishing on the internet. So we said, all right, we're going to take a whole new approach with this. We're fortunate to have the backing of IEC, so we've got some capital to try new things. And we're going to focus in on what we are and what makes us great and not try to copy or be anybody else or do something unnatural. And what about.com had always been is great content and great service content. So we're going to focus on being great service content. That is content that helps you, helps you diagnose something, cook something, make something, buy something, um, just learn something, sort of interpret something, anything like that, paint something. Like we're going to make the very best content. So the first thing we're going to do is for every single article and every single piece of content we have on all these brands we're going to launch, we're going to try and make the best thing on the internet. And that's going to be expensive. Um, but it's the only reason for us to exist because the world doesn't need any more mediocre stuff. So we're going to try and do the best things. And then we're going to do two things that no one else is doing. We're going to do this on what are going to be the fastest sites on the consumer internet, because we know that speed like it's not a linear relationship between ad performance and consumer satisfaction. The faster things go, people get way, way, way happier and things perform way, way, way better. So we're going to make our sites incredibly fast. But what that means is making fast, simple things is very hard. You have to make very hard decisions about what you will do and what you won't do. And that ties into the third thing we said, which is we are going to have fundamentally less advertising than any of our competitors in any space in which we compete. We're going to shoot for like two thirds of their advertising. And there's things we are never going to do. We're never going to do a pop-up. We're never going to do an interstitial. We're never going to do a pre-roll. We're never going to do anything that gets in the way of your content because people hate that. And the bet was if we do these three things, best content, fastest sites, fewest ads, people will like that. And it turns out that we think what that will do is that will help us get back control of our relationships with people because they will like us and it will send signals to algorithms that algorithms should favor us. And we also decided in that, that like, we're not going to care about certain algorithms. I don't care about Facebook. I don't care about Twitter. They're not good for our type of content. They don't value quality content. They value virality. That's not what we do. We care a lot about Pinterest and we care a lot about Google and we care a lot about Apple news and we care a lot about Flipboard. And on the other side, what that's going to do is if we can do that and we can build audiences, these audiences are going to be incredibly qualified audiences, really amazing audiences where we give them an incredible user experience. And despite we don't let advertisers do a lot of the things they do in other places, the bet was our stuff will perform much better and people will be able to target contextually from us, not audience based. In other words, like 
if someone is coming to our site July 2nd and looking for like barbecue recipes, we know exactly what they're going to do. We know exactly what kind of advertising needs to go there. If you're looking to how to assemble bunk beds for my kid's room, we know exactly everything we need to know about you. We know exactly what advertisers to put next to you. If your router is too slow, same thing. So we bet that we could take some leverage back from the audience-based advertising and say, oh, we can do incredible contextual advertising, which performs way, way, way better. And we did all these things. And it, like, it is like the most simple thing possible that we did. We're like, okay, we're just going to make really fast sites that have good content that people like and the ads are respectful. And we're going to do it in categories where we think we can really compete. And that's what we did. So in, in 2016, we started breaking up about.com before we eventually sunset about.com. And we launched very well in health and the balance in finance. And then we, we, we took over Investopedia, which is another IAC brand in finance. And we launched LifeWire and tech and the spruce and home and food. And this whole thing really clicked. And then in, in very IAC style, if you know anything about IAC, as soon as we had a model that worked, we went out and said, well, what other properties can we get that we can run this playbook on, that we can do our things, where we can get really good brands and we can do things to like enhance their content and make them speedier and clean up their ad stack. And, and, and can, we, can we add things to this mix? And um, it's worked. And, and like people ask us all the time, like, what are the tricks? What are the, there's no tricks. It's just super hard work. Like work really hard making your sites really fast. Work really hard making your content really great. Spend a lot of money on those things. Don't spend money on things that don't have yield for you. And, you know, I think the financial results speak for themselves. I think that uh, in two, you know, when we started this that year, we did like six, we did like 70 ish million in revenue and lost $20 million. Um, you know, in 2019, we did about 167 in revenue and we made 40 in EBITDA. Uh, IAC has told Wall Street to expect, you know, 20% revenue growth from us this year, you know, with increasing EBITDA margins. Um, you know, our, our revenue mix is not just advertising, you know, we're north of 35% transactions now. So this, this type of publishing we do where people really trust us, now they don't just trust us for advice, they trust us when we tell them what router to buy and they trust us when we tell them what credit card to sign up for. So we have a really nice diversified business across all these different brands and all these different verticals. Uh, we make revenue a bunch of different ways. We sell premium, we sell programmatic, we do a lot of transactional stuff. So we, we really like where we are. You know, we've, we've made a few acquisitions recently that we're, we're now integrating and, and, and like I'm have a super different view of publishing than a lot of people do. I'm very bullish on publishing. I'm, I'm very bullish on publishers that have a really good plan and a really good focus. So there are many facets of the business that I'm going to want to talk about today, but I want to first focus in on that audience and what you described is really understanding the algorithms. DotDash's sites are by and large very reliant on organic search for a decent percentage of your traffic. Can you talk a little bit more about that approach, both from how you think about content and how you've structured the team? And does it ever worry you considering Google has been slowly encroaching on publishers ground with modifications to the results pages? So um, the whole idea of SEO, the way we look at it or I look at it, it's a trap. It is a backward looking trap and it's not really something that we focus on doing. What we focus on doing, and just so I understand, like our percentage of traffic from search is roughly the same as other publishers. You know, it's, a, it's an awful lot in health and it's a lot less in um, food or home. But, but I, I think where publishers go wrong and where companies go wrong is when they focus on search as SEO and it's like you have to optimize for something because that doesn't work. That used to work, but that doesn't work. 
what works is like the way you do SEO or the way we do SEO is pretty simple. Like if you're going to write an article on a topic, you need to figure out what you think is the very best thing on that topic on the internet. And how do you do that? Well, you have experts that write it and experts that review it that have their opinion. And then you go out and you look at every other thing on the internet that is written about that topic. And you try and make the best thing, which means maybe it needs a lot of words and a video and an infographic and a GIF and a this. And you just have to work really, really, really hard to make the very, very best content uh, on topics that you care about. And for us, it's like finance and health and home and food and those things. Um, and you will be successful. And, and like, obviously, you study what competitors are doing. And obviously, you need to be technically um, sound in what you do so algorithms can understand you, right? Like if Google can't understand you, they can't rank you. So you have to make sure they understand you. But the, the way that, that you win with algorithms is super simple. Like Google, when there's a query, they want to give the best answer to that query. The best way to optimize for Google is be the best answer for that query. Same thing on Pinterest. Like if you're the best image or the best something for that search, you're going to win. Like in Apple News and Flipboard, if you're the most authoritative on that topic, you're going to do just fine. And uh, now I'll take your second question is, which is like, I'm, I'm not sure if you're asking like, so Google algorithm changes or some or whatever's algorithm changes. Like that's always a risk. I think we have a fairly diversified business here. We've got like 13 different brands and 25 or 26 different domains. So when people make changes, you know, like some go up, some go down. If you look at our history over since we started doing this, we're, we're significantly more up than down. Um, so so that their algorithm changing is not a concern. The second thing you point out with that I think you're getting at is right now, like 50 or 51 percent of searches that go to Google never leave Google and because Google answers them in some way. And we have not seen in the last three or four years any impact on our growth, or if we have, we've, we've grown right through it. But yeah, look, if Google decides to not send any queries to publishers, we're going to have to find another way to get audience. And we have no illusions like, like Facebook or Google or you name the algorithm. They don't owe us anything. Um, and we don't owe them anything either. Like we, we, we all like live together in this, in this world, but like you hear publishers sometimes complain about algorithms, but you can't complain about algorithms because you probably didn't make great decisions about something. And um, the, 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 the only risk that there is, not the only risk, who knows what the risk is, there's a lot of risks, but the, the risk with Google is a risk you point out. Like for some reason, the number of queries that go to publishers go down, but we haven't really seen that. And look, if you're, if you're a publisher that is like, you know, what is Jacob Donnelly's net worth? Uh, that is not a sustainable business. But if it's, you know, like very complex answers to people's questions on like what to do with a specific shelf bracket or um, how to treat this chronic condition, I think we're going to be in fairly good shape for a, for a while. So then moving to the second part of the strategy you described, it's about building that streamlined tech experience or making the sites really quick. Um, when you started really building out the CMS and the websites, what were some of the core features that you knew the tech stack had to have for you to deliver that great content to your audience in as, as an efficiently possible way? So this is an interesting thing. Uh, and I, I'm saying this, this is not to be provocative, but it's true. None. 
there was nothing that we had to have. The, the thing that we had to have was we had to be lightning fast and lightning fast in that, you know, there's a million different speed tests and, you know, tests Google puts out in the world and tests we can do ourselves. Like we needed to be like 90% plus green light, whatever the measure of that test we had to be. And then we would work backwards. There, there was no things that we had to do because our take was the number one thing we have to have is a happy, engaged, growing audience. And then we will figure out how to make money secondarily. Now, we, we had an advantage that we were part of IC and, and a big public company. And sort of like the year, first year we made this transition, we were permitted to lose you know, a whole bunch of money that I talked about before. But there are no sacred cows for us in any of this stuff. And like we have a real aversion to um, look, we use some, we have a real aversion to ad tech and, and anything really complicated that slows you down because everybody can show you a 10% lift from their product, but what they don't show you is like the nine other things that go wrong that gives it right back. Because like, if you used every ad tech product in the world, your business would go up by 300%, but it just doesn't work that way. Um, we just said speed is first, and then we're going to build uh, any of our infrastructure based on Speed and simplicity. Speed and simplicity for us trumps everything else. Now let's move on and talk about the third part, which is the the advertising component or the, the business model overall. Um, to start, you are, with comparison to many other not so true statements, you are an advertising first profitable media company. What is the strategy for advertising at DotDash? Um, I mean... The, again, everything begins with an audience and begins with performance. And we've never been, look, when we had to restart our business, nobody knew what our brands were, right? No one knew what very well was. Nobody knew what the balance was. Nobody knew what the spruce was. Um, when we bought a few brands, people knew know what our brands are now. When there's like Investopedia and Birdie and Brides and Serious Eats and Simply Recipes, people know these now. But so no one knew us. So we knew that we had to get in the door. If we were going to get in the door and take real premium ad dollars from people, that our advantage was going to have to be audience and performance. And the good news for us was that aligned with everything else we were doing. We knew we were building this great content and we were building this machine to get these intent-based users at scale. And if we could convince an advertiser to, to do a buy with us or a test buy or get us on the buy, we knew that we would keep them because like our performance was just unbelievable. And we, we knew this because... The first brand we launched was very well, our health brand. And, and, and when we had some carryover ad deals from about.com onto very well, our clients called us and are like, basically like, what are you guys doing? You're cheating. Like your performance just like quadrupled on this new thing. Like what is going on here? And we're like, no, 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 here's what we did. So we have found that our way in is different. We're not, we're not, we didn't get in the door with like amazing content studio idea. Now we have better content studio abilities than anybody else, but that comes out of being able to invest in it. We got in the door by saying, give us a shot and we'll outperform anyone else on your plan or nearly anyone else on your plan. And it's worked. I mean, IEC talks a lot about us because we're sort of part of a public company and we're, we're quasi public. There's actually a lot of data on us out in the markets if you wanna go find it. I, I think, I'm going to get this wrong, but for the last you know six or seven quarters, 23 of our top 25 advertisers have come back every single quarter. And these are really big name advertisers. And that's not because we're like winning new campaigns every quarter. It's because our stuff performs so well that they need us. And 
And that has been our strategy to get in the door is performance. And we also knew that given what we were doing with content and with speed and um, with fewer ads that lead to performance like this, we also knew that if we can actually pull this off, we think we have a real competitive advantage here because I don't think a lot of other publishers can make this shift unless they're willing to, you know, have the transition period that we had in, you know, 2016, 17, where they lost a bunch of money and made a huge bet that this would work and then it worked. So I, I think right now we lead, depending on the average, if they already know us and know our performance, then we'll lead with creative and we'll lead with ideas and we'll lead with our brands and our brands are really, frankly, they're amazing now. Um, but we got in the door originally with performance. In 2019, Axios published a story about the launch of the Spruced Best Home paint line, which was in partnership with Masco. And this was one of the first major forays into the owned commerce business. How does DotDash think about commerce as a line of business? And where do you see the most growth coming across the various verticals? Uh, we love commerce. We love commerce um, because I think as we got into this, and, and we're, we are like a true classic service publisher, we've learned that of all the stuff we've talked about or you've gotten me to talk about here, trust is the thing that underpins everything. And like the ultimate manifestation of trust is putting your name actually on something. So we um, we started with paint, uh, with the spruce. We've done some stuff in pets for the spruce. We have a um, national rollout uh, coming very shortly in a, in a one of the really big, big box retailers of an amazing line of products also under the spruce name. And then a second rollout in the spring also under the spruce name. We obviously started with the spruce. And what we have realized is um, being able to get real life presentation of what your brand means in a tangible way is great. And again, we are much more concerned with the branding of these product things than we are in the P&L impact. And I, th I actually think there's going to be some P&L impact for some of this potentially, but it's really us for branding. And like, we want you to go to your favorite retailer and see like a bunch of square feet of stuff that has our brand on it. Um, but it's been really, really um, interesting to us. And interesting to see how like retailers think about our brands. I mean, the Spruce is the biggest home and food site, like virtually the biggest standalone home and food site on the internet right now. Um, so we have a lot of reach with a lot of ability to move product in our paint. Um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to give out numbers, but our paint has been like incredibly successful. It's one of the biggest launches in that category in a really long time, um, which way outdid anything we anticipated it would do. And again, it's not a big financial impact for us, but it just says like, what is the power of the brand and what is the power of the media? When people trust you and come to you for advice, it, it can really be impactful. You're going to see a lot more from us in that. Um, the second question you may be asking is like, well, what about commerce? Like, and I think the other thing we found out is um, people want our recommendations. Like if they're, and I'll go back to the spruce again, if they're on the, the spruce eats or they're on Simply Recipes or they're on Serious Eats and they need a blender, they want to know what these editorial teams think is the best blender. And our editors will help pick the best blender. And then if someone buys a blender, we make a little bit of money. Um, we have total editorial integrity. Our editorial people have no idea about any economic deal behind any of the recommendations they make. Um, but it's, it's become, you know, it's now commerce and people trusting us is now, you know, it's going to be 30, it's, you know, I think last quarter it was nearly 40% of our revenue. So it's a material, material, material thing that, that we do and we're excited about. 
And so I want to talk about Investopedia for a second. Um, there's a product on there called the Academy, which are effectively courses that you you sell around, you know, how to make good trades and, and things like that. This is premium content. Do you envision this sort of premium content as something you could introduce on other verticals, whether through a subscription or just selling one-offs? We, uh, we could. Uh, I think it's particular... Um... It's particular to Investopedia because of its Investopedia sort of like roots in sort of like edu- education. There's definitely an education um, DNA in there from, you know, whether you work on Wall Street or whether you're a student learning about this stuff. So some of the courses have been successful. You know, I think we're, we're, we're looking at, we're looking at different things in different verticals. And, and I'll, I'll take what you said and say, is there a premium content opportunity? There is definitely a premium content opportunity, but, in our world, if you're going to ask somebody to pay for content, um, that's a whole different thing that, frankly, we don't have a great expertise around. And we're, we're playing around on Investopedia to try and learn how to do that and how to deliver things. But um, these are more one-off sales of courses and content we've developed than like traditional subscriptions. Um, I think subscriptions are, are trickier than we, we haven't really figured that out yet. I'm not totally sure we're trying to figure that out either. Um, but it's something that we're doing, and I think we're, we're, we're playing around with it. We're playing around with it. So we've talked about audience, we've talked about technology, and we've talked about the business model. And IAC and Dot Dash are, you, know, you want to acquire other sites to help you continue growing towards you know, your, your objective. And we'll talk about the future in a few minutes. You know, as you continue to grow, are there other verticals that you're looking to move into? And expanding on that, if you could craft the perfect acquisition, what does it look like? Uh, good, good. Those are two very good questions. Um, I think the verticals we're in now. So the interesting thing about our business is people ask us like, oh my God, you guys are so big. You're a hundred million a month on Comscore now. And you're look at GA, you're way bigger than that. Like, what are you going to do? We're not the leader. We're still true challenger brands in basically every space that we're in. Like in food, we know the Spruce Eats and Simply Recipes and Serious Eats and Liquor.com. Uh, but all recipes is still twice the size of us, right? Twice the size of any one of those brands. In health, WebMD and Healthline are, you know, three times the size of very well or whatever, two times the size of very well. And going down the line, like the organic growth we can have in any of our verticals is is really, really exciting. And there's two ways to do that. There's we, we grow ourselves or um, we make acquisitions. And I, I think we, we, we are excited about both outcomes. I think that we have... Um, we're investing an awful lot. I don't really know. There's probably a few publishers um, that are investing in or around the level that we are, but there aren't many, uh, which is a real advantage. And and some of the things we bought have been real catalysts. And, and again, to get back to your verticals, we love health, we love finance, we love food and drink, we love home, we love beauty and style. Um, we are learning tech. We're in tech. We do we actually we do fairly well in tech, but we're we're learning. We'd like to scale there. Um, and that's pretty much where we're focused now. I'm not saying we wouldn't do something else, but you're probably more likely to see us do things within those verticals, like like we just did um, in in food a few weeks ago, and like we did with liquor. And uh, the, the one vertical we really wanted to get into was beauty and style. We sort of bought our way in with uh, Birdie and Brides. Um, in the home space, we have the Spruce and we have My Domain. We'd, we'd like to do a little bit more there too, if we could. Um, but you know, we're 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 a little bit. I mean, this is like a very Wall Street, but we're, it's a little bit of like a platform and add-on, bolt-on acquisition uh, strategy, which 
we've got these platforms and now we're looking for bolt-ons for the most part. Um, I mean, the ideal acquisition, I don't know if there is an ideal acquisition. I guess the ideal acquisition is one that works. But the thing we did now, um, thing we just did a few weeks ago where we bought the recipes and serious eats um, is, is, a, is a pretty good blueprint for the things that we like. And it's funny, we, we did that. And I, the next day I got a call from this investment banker I know who I, who I actually like very much and who's helpful to us. He was like, wow, guys, that's really interesting what you just did, you know, it's really off the radar. And I was like, well, like whose radar? Like, this is our radar. Like if, if you understand what we're doing, like this is exactly what we should be doing. And what we were able to do is, is, is buy two brands that are not broken. We're not into buying broken stuff. We're not, we're into buying like real vibrant living brands. Um, we, we pay a fair price for them. Um, but, you know, these brands in particular are, are great, but, you know, they're part of a smaller media company and it's very hard to be a small media company. And we can, we can take Simply Recipes and we can take Serious Eats. Simply Recipes is, um, you know, one of the original food blogs online, a very down the middle food site. Serious Eats is like a very, um, you know, like Brooklyn based foodie food science site. That's like, I personally have like admired for years and years and I'm thrilled we got to own it. And, and we get to, to, to do our thing to them, which we get to invest. We get to, we keep full editorial teams. We let their editorial teams do what's right to be the best stuff in their point of view. And we get to really grow them. And then we get to put them on our platform so the sites get faster and the ad stack gets better and we can help them sell things. And um, those are pretty down the middle for us. But look, we're, we're looking at pretty much everything that's out there. It's, you know, deals are hard. We, we look at a lot more than we do. But, uh, you know, I'll be disappointed if we can't do some more. We can't buy some more things. Where do you see DotDash in the next three to five years? And I suppose more specifically, is there a future in your mind where DotDash could be its own company, similar to how IAC spun out all of its dating websites? I mean, that's not really up to me. That's really up to IAC. But what I would say is like, we love being part of IAC, right? We, get, we, we, we have enough capital to buy things. We have all kinds of creative ways to pay and compensate people. Um, and... Their leadership's amazing. They let their CEOs run their businesses. And like, if you can have a board of directors, it's like, you know, Joey Levin and a guy named Mark Stein and Barry Diller, that's about as good as it's going to get. Um, so we're pretty happy there. Um, you know, going out to like run a public company doesn't really feel all that appealing. It feels very difficult. I mean, maybe one day we'll be big enough um, where, where, uh, where we can do that. And look, I, I've heard, you know, like, you know, Joey and, and Mr. Diller say all the time, like success is independence. When you get big enough that you're too big for the nest, uh, then it's time to get free. Then we've all done our job right. So if it happens one day, great. If it doesn't, great. You know, I'm not, it's, it's not particularly up to me. I'm also not particularly lobbying for it. I, I, I like, I like where we are now. So I want to wrap up with the same two questions I ask every operator that I speak to on this podcast. First, I'm happy you call me an operator at this point. Like I do so little real work that I'm honored. I'm happy that like someone calls me an operator or anything. I'm more, more like I'm an annoyer. I just annoy people. <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to assume that you still have to have somewhat of an operating experience, uh, background because your media business is profitable. And that in my mind is a big, big driver of your ability to be an operator uh, is the ability to operate a profitable business. Um, so Throughout your media career, you know, I'm sure you have made mistakes. And we talked a little bit about, you know, the mistake with trying to stick with, with, with about.com versus, you know, breaking it up into the smaller, more successful brands. 
But what is a mistake that you have made individually that you obviously wish you hadn't? And what did you learn from it? Oh, man, there are so many mistakes. Um, I don't know. I, I think like one of my, everyone has good traits and bad traits. I think my a very good trait is a short memory for mistakes or like you, you lodge it, but you don't, you don't dwell on it. I think we, the mistake that we made here and we made it consistently for two years or two and a half years is we were doing a lot of things, right? Like we we're doing a lot of things, right. That now like sort of like are the, the underpin or the, the, the infrastructure of our business now, but we spent way too much time worried about what everybody else was doing. And I was as guilty of that as anybody. And, you know, like these guys would get a lot of press for this thing they were doing and we would scratch our heads and like intuitively we knew that it wasn't right or like even or like that's really dumb. And then we would go and do it anyway or do something like it anyway. And it, it took us a little bit of time, you know, it took us a year or two to figure out that like, that, no, that's a mistake. Like we have we have to understand like what our uniqueness to the world is. And like in our case, our uniqueness to the world was service content. And if you're going to be service content, you have to run your business a very different way than if somebody's doing news or somebody's doing sports or somebody's doing gossip or somebody's doing style. And it, it took a long time to sort of just like get the confidence to be like, you know what, we're not, that is, we're not doing that. We're doing it our way. We'd rather like, if we're going to win or lose, let's win or lose on our terms, not terms dictated by somebody else. And like, Blocking out the external factors is really, really hard. And, you know, it, it, we, we, we got good at it, but I think we just like took it to such an extreme that, you know, you're in a meeting with very smart people and they're all asking you why your traffic's declining from Facebook. And we're like, well, we don't care about Facebook. And they're looking at you like you're insane. Like your business is shrinking. Your traffic is shrinking. You're telling me you don't care about Facebook and what, but it turns out that like, in, in that case, we were right. But the mistake is like, the shiny thing, like trying to follow the shiny thing, particularly in media, is like death. And and that's what I think we, we rescued ourselves from in the nick of time. And second, if you could give other perspective or current operators some advice, what would it be? Oh, is this like the advice to young people question or like just advice to anyone question? Anyone looking to get into media or already running a media company, young, old, I mean, and I don't. I think like the the. I think if you're going to run a, a media business in some way, and it's something that it took us a long time to figure out, and lucky for us, we had like a public company behind us. But you have to figure out your reason to exist. And and the thing that we say all the time to ourselves is like, if this brand or if this site or if this piece of content disappears from the internet forever, will anybody care? And if the answer is no, you need to do something differently. Obviously, that, that's too extreme, but. The answer is like, if we're going to have a health site called Very Well that's going to spend tens of million dollars a year on content and really compete with the WebMD and Healthline and have a very distinct point of view, when we launched it, could we have said, if this thing goes away tomorrow, will anybody care? And the answer is no. But if we launch that today and it goes away from the internet, a lot of people are going to care. And that means we're doing something right. And um, it goes to like, the world doesn't need any more mediocre stuff and that goes to content and that like you can't do like okay content on an okay site with too many ads it's just not going to work and and if, if that is what you're doing now i'm sure there's a nugget or a kernel in your business um that you can find that can be sort of like the cornerstone of the thing that you should be doing and like 
there's a lot of guys in media that are doing a very, very good job now and some really interesting models like obviously like Axios and like Morning Brew and Complex and Healthline. And it goes down the list of guys that are like all the guys at Red Ventures, like really, really smart people doing really smart things that not enough people are talking about. Um, and and th there are models that totally work and, and you, you just got to figure out how you can be one of them. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe and give it a five-star rating with your thoughts. If you want even more, sign up for the newsletter at amediaoperator.com. Each Tuesday, I analyze the latest media news. And on Fridays, I do deep dives into specific strategic and tactical topics about building media businesses. Thanks for listening and see you next week.